Christmas is about joy. It's a happy season. We say happy holidays. We say Merry Christmas. We sing have a holly jolly Christmas. We talk about jolly old Saint Nick. We gather. We sing. We eat. Christmas is about joy. Joy. But why? Even if you think you know the answer to that question, I want you to actually answer this rhetorical question in your mind. Why are we joyful at Christmas? Why is Christmas a reason for joy? And then I want to ask you that question I asked at the beginning. Is true joy even possible? Really think about your answer to that question. Is true joy really possible? And then I want you to answer the question for yourself. Are you joyful? Are you full of joy? Are you joyful? Again, if you grew up in the church, you know the answer to those questions. But they're important questions to ask. Because what happens when Christmas comes and you're not joyful? Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you know that feeling. Maybe you're not joyful. You know the right answers. I know that true joy is possible. Uh, maybe you don't, but maybe you say, even affirm that. I know true joy is possible. But when you ask me that question, am I joyful? No, I'm not joyful. Maybe that's you this Christmas. Maybe it's been you a previous Christmas. And I'm sad to tell you that it probably will be you at some point on Christmas. You'll be in this holly jolly season and you won't be feeling jolly. You might be crushed by the circumstances of your life or you might feel the weight of your own sin. Maybe you're overwhelmed by sorrow that the best you can do is you say, okay, I'm going to muster everything up. I'm going to get through the snow drifts. I'm going to make it to church on Christmas morning and I'm going to just squeeze a smile out because remember, it's a season of joy. But that's all you've got because you're so full of sorrow. Maybe you're mourning. Maybe you're weeping. Or maybe you're here and life is good. Smooth sailing. You are basking in the glow of your own prosperity. At least that's what it looks like from the outside. Yet you know you are empty inside. Your, your answer to the question, are you joyful, is just as empty. No, I'm not joyful. I have everything, but I, I have nothing. Well, Christmas is about joy. Okay, I know this is a bit of a downer start here. Christmas is about joy. But I want you to know that the message of the Bible and the message of Christmas is not just this warm, fuzzy, self-help, quick fix type of joy. Christmas is about joy, but it's a different kind of joy than I think we settle for all too often. Just a kind of happy, clappy, holly jolly joy. Christmas is about joy, real, deep 
joy. And I want to encourage you with that because this real true joy is better news. It's far better news than a joy that's dependent on, uh, you know, dreaming of a white Christmas. We got it. Did that bring you joy? I don't know. It caused more headaches, I think, than joy. Right? You can understand how if we think about the things that, you know, we are conditioned to think that should bring us joy at Christmas, how, how flaky and how empty those things really are. There is good news for you today, friend, that real, true joy exists. And today we find ourselves in Psalm 30. Uh, Psalms chapter 30. If you didn't bring a Bible or if you don't have a Bible uh, or if you just forgot your Bible, there are Bibles on the table over there. You are more than welcome to grab. I will be reading it out loud, but I do think, as always, you'll be helped by having a Bible in your lap as you follow along. Again, we'll be going through Psalm 30, and it's the next psalm, if, we, is, if you've been with us for any length of time, we've just been chipping away, taking a psalm at a time, and this is the psalm we land on, and at least the title in my Bible says, Joy Comes with the Morning. Joy Comes with the Morning. Let's hear God's holy and true word, and if you believe that This is God's word, and God's word is good, and you're thankful for it. I'm going to say at the end of my reading, thanks be, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and I would encourage you to say with me, thanks be to God. Let's hear God's word. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Yahweh, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Yahweh my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to Yahweh, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Yahweh, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Yahweh, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Yahweh, and be merciful to me. O Yahweh, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Yahweh, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So this psalm is about joy. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And so we ask the question, where is joy found? And I want to look at where joy is found and where joy is lost this morning. Where joy is found, where it's lost, and then where it's found again. So first, where is joy found? Well, joy is found in rescue. 
We see this all throughout the psalm, but we see it specifically in the first five verses here. Joy is found in rescue. Whatever the circumstances of David's life that were reason for him to pen this psalm or were reason for him to talk in the way that he does as he wrote these words, we see that his rescue is the reason for his thanksgiving. Right off the beginning, he says, I will extol you or I will exalt you. I will lift you up, God. And then there's kind of a pun here. For you have drawn me up. Right? There's a little bit of a play on words. There's, he's kind of connecting these things. I will lift you up. I will extol you, O Yahweh, for you have drawn me up. That's his reason for thanksgiving. That's his reason for praise. He has been drawn up. This word here for drawn up is a word that's used elsewhere in Scripture just to literally talk about drawing up water from a well, lowering a bucket down into a well and drawing it up. And so the question then we ask, if that's the word we're kind of looking at, what is, it, what is, da- what is David being drawn up from? Well, then things get pretty heavy. It says, you have not let my fo- foes rejoice over me. O Yahweh, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Yahweh, you have brought, me, uh, brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So this proverbial well that David is talking about is death. Right? It's Sheol. It's, it's a word for the realm of the dead. The pit. It's, again, just another word that's used for death. And so we don't know, again, the exact circumstances of David's life, whether he was talking about uh, an illness or some opposition, like deadly opposition from foes uh, that caused him to write this, or whether he's being just metaphorical in in the, the grip of death that feels like it's coming around him. Well, that's what he's been rescued from, and that's his reason for thanksgiving, and that's what we'll see is where his joy is found. Joy is found in rescue. He's saved from death in some way. And so he's rightly thankful. And then we see what he does right after. He turns to others. And that's what we do, right? When we uh, uh, find some source of joy, when we find good news in some way, we want to tell other people. In verses 4 and 5, it says, Sing praises to Yahweh, O you his saints. Saints just being God's people, the faithful people of God. O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So David's been rescued, he's found this good news, and he wants to tell other people about it and tell them to also exalt God, to also extol God, to lift him up. And we understand this, right? When you're excited about something, when you are convinced about something, you want to tell other people. And I give CrossFitters a hard time sometimes. You know, CrossFit, like the type of exercise, because CrossFitters can't go five minutes without telling you that they do CrossFit. Five minutes might be an over-exaggeration, but the reason that they tell other people about this good news of uh, their new exercise regime is because they believe it. They are convinced. They have found some kind of respite, if you could call it that, in this grueling fitness, and they want to tell other people about it. And I think in a very convoluted way. That's where my mind went. That's what David is doing here. He says, I found rescue. Come on, let's praise the rescuer. That's what David is doing. Joy is found in rescue, and he's encouraging others to do the same. And in this encouragement for others to do the same, it begs the question then for these other saints and for us here this morning to think, what is the pit that we feel like we're in? What, are, what is this, this 
death grip of suffering or fear uh, that feels like it is most likely to reach up and grab you. Or maybe you feel like you're already drowning in it. Maybe it's opposition from others. Again, we see this. David was the king. He had many enemies. So he talks about these foes who want to rejoice over his downfall. So maybe it's opposition from others. Maybe it's literal sickness. Uh, Many have thought that that's what this psalm is talking about. We don't have a time that we know in David's life where he was suffering from a life-threatening illness like this, but he talks about God healing him. We cried to him for help. Or maybe it's, this feels like a bit of a catch-all, but it's a real thing. Maybe you're here and you fear the pit. Maybe you fear death. What is the pit that you fear or feel stuck in? Maybe it's the future. Maybe it's the, whatever is looming, the future prospects of life is just crushing. Or maybe it's the fact that there, there feels like there are no prospects in life and that, that's defeating you. Well, friend, I want you to be encouraged that joy is found in rescue. And the good news of Psalm 30 is it's not uh, a declaration that to be joyful is just to be immune from suffering and pain. That, there, this, this psalm wouldn't be written if that was the case. It would have just said, joy comes in the morning, period. That's the end of the psalm, right? There's, there's circumstances that got to a place where there is weeping that will last for the night. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. There's good news in this psalm that if you're in the midst of suffering right now, it might not feel like the best news, but the sun always rises. The night is dark, but the sun will always rise. There is a deadline. There is an end date to your suffering and your pain. The sun always rises. Night always ends. It might be a long night, might be a hard night, but morning is coming. And we know this. As Christians, we know this. And we can say that because Jesus died as a substitution for sinners. Jesus lived a sinless life and died in the place of sinners and didn't stay dead. That would be a good news if somehow he could still die for us uh, and we were just cleared. Even better news is he didn't stay dead. He defeated death. He rose from the dead on the third day. God raised him up. He defeated sin. And this, he did this to rescue us from our sin. That is our rescue. And this rescue is an invitation then for all of us into his victory over sin and over death. For all who would turn and trust in Christ and find real rescue in him. That's how we know that morning is coming. This might be a confusing sermon because I I talk about more. There's two mornings in here. There's M-O-U, morning, uh, and then there's morning, like morning. Good morning. That's what we are here. Morning is coming. And we know that because of Christ. Joy is found in rescue. 
And that's the scope that we need to have if we want to find true joy. If we decide, no, I don't want to think that big. I want to just think about this life. If our hope is in this life only, you will find this sermon. You will find the Bible. You will find Jesus deeply unsatisfying. Because the hope that we need to have stretches beyond the scope of this life. If you're only looking for relief from your immediate circumstances, what happens when you don't find that? Well, then, boom, poof, there goes your hope for joy. But the good news is there is a much bigger scope than that, that we don't have to be caught on this hamster wheel of life just seeking out joy and never finding it. Right? Because what if the morning never comes? Well, a Christian's hope is not rescue from every problem, but it is rescue from our biggest problem. And our biggest problem is our sin. Our sin that separates us from a perfect and holy God. He is rightly angry about sin, but we see right here in this psalm that his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. His anger in its complete perfection fell completely on Christ when he died for us. So his anger indeed is but for a moment. And then through what Jesus did in his dying, in his resurrection, and in his extending this invitation to each one of us to put our trust in him and his righteousness, that's how we know that his, this favor is for a lifetime. It's how we can find real joy. It's how this answer is not unsatisfying, that joy is indeed possible, that yes, not every little problem in our life, which don't always feel like little problems, go away. But our biggest problem is taken care of in full. That's rescue. That's rescue. And we will know these fears. We will know these tears. But through Christ, we only ever have to feel like we're going down to the pit because he went down to the pit for us. Think about that. We might feel like the grip of death, the realm of the dead, is swallowing us up, that we're drowning in the bottom of this well. But Jesus came to us to rescue us. He descended. I remember being confused by the word that we sang earlier in, in uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It says, look to Christ who condescended. I only ever thought of condescension as like... Uh, a bad thing, like, oh, that guy's so condescending. But it means to come down. The gift of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus came down. He condescended. He lowered himself like a bucket into a well that you're drowning in, the well of broken humanity and all of our sin to rescue us. Joy is found, friend, in the rescue. And weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And so if our view is so narrow that we are only looking for relief in this life, we simply can't claim to be a Christian. We simply can't claim to have hope in Christ, a, a, a more ultimate victory than just the circumstances of our life. And I know that's hard, a hard pill to swallow. But it's something for us to consider. What, what, how do we answer the question, what is true joy? 
That's why I think it really is an important question to answer. Joy is found in rescue. And so you can ask the question, why is it, think of your own life, the people that you know, maybe biographies that you've read, why is it that the Christians who have experienced the most intense suffering and sorrow that's even beyond our imagination, why is it that they are the ones that are most sure of God's goodness and faithfulness? You could talk to people around this room. I look out and I see people who I know for a fact have suffered deeply. But I know for a fact the confidence that the people in this room have in Christ and in the goodness of God. And I know the reason for that. It's because joy is found in rescue. Joy is found in rescue. Because if we fail to have that, there's something about being in the bottom of a well and acknowledging that our joy is built upon this rescue of something being lowered down to rescue us, to draw us up out of the pit of spiritual death. There is a reliance there. That is not saving yourself. That is being saved. That is rescue. And the opposite of rescue, the opposite of that humility is self-sufficiency. And that's where we see, even in this psalm, that joy is lost in self-sufficiency. Joy is found in rescue, but joy is lost in self-sufficiency. I think the scariest place to be is not a place of known desperation, but a place of ignorant self-sufficiency. The scariest place to be is not a place of known desperation, it's a place of ignorant self-sufficiency. David goes through this as we look at verses six and seven. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. It's like he's looking back in time. It's hard to fit together this psalm of knowing it's a poem, right? It doesn't necessarily follow a chronological order. And so maybe the the reason for God's righteous anger was uh, what David is talking about here, this, this feeling he has. But what he does for us is he looks backwards and he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Yahweh, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was dismayed. So this is a bit of a tricky thing. You can spend your Christmas afternoon, if you want, studying these verses and kind of wrestling with what this could be. But I think, and and from studying it and reading other commentators, this seems to be David saying that in his prosperity, he pridefully came and said, I shall never be moved. When things were going well for him, when life was stable, when things were going smooth, he said, I'm good. I'm the man. But from this vantage point where he is now in this psalm of thanksgiving, he's able to look back and say, no, that's not in fact the way it was. By your favor, O Yahweh, by your favor, you made my mountain stand strong. He's just picking an image of something that's incredibly stable, like a mountain. You made me be strong. It was you. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Maybe your Bible says instead of dismayed, it says terrified. So it takes us on a bit of a journey through uh, verses six and seven, right? As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. No, that's not it. By your favor, O Yahweh, you made my mountain stand strong. That's good. Oh, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Pride creeps in to our lives because of our comfort and our stability. And so David was a more prosperous man than 
anyone here, I'm pretty certain. But he affirms that it was not him who put him there. It was not him who made this mountain strong. It was God. And the, the folly of thinking that it's our sure footing, our merit that makes us stand strong is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. So we were made to be in fellowship with God. That's what it talks about, God's face being in front of him and, and God's favor. But when he talks about this, his face being hidden, that's just like he, he is being separated from God's presence. He's being separated from God's divine favor. And, and we realize this as we think about our own lives, as we look in the mirror and we think about our sin, we realize that every time we sin, we are electing that position. We are saying, I want to be Lord of my life. I want to be the, the guy holding the steering wheel. And we are saying that we are willingly electing the place where God is, is distant, where we are not dwelling with him. We are, we are not finding favor because our sin is by nature disfavorable. We are left hopeless when we say in our prosperity, I shall never be moved. And so joy is lost in self-sufficiency. And I fear that that may be a more even common problem here for us today than those who are stuck in a, a joyless Christmas uh, be, and an obvious joyless Christmas because of suffering or trial. Or you might be here and everything looks great, but you have a joyless Christmas too because joy is lost in self-sufficiency. And we know this, but we need to be taught this over and over again that money and stability don't buy happiness. We need this reminder often that true joy doesn't come from success or prosperity or a white Christmas or a man in a red suit. True joy comes from knowing God and being known by God. And that can't happen when we believe that we're self-sufficient. That's the big idea from Psalm 30. That true joy is found in the presence of God. True joy is found in the presence of God. Joy is found in the rescue. Joy is lost in self-sufficiency. And the big idea in our third point this morning, joy is found in the presence of God. And throughout this psalm are all these allusions and things that point to this very fact, that joy is found in the presence of God. David desperately needs God's favor and he's dismayed when God's face is hidden from him. And that's the problem that we have. That is our biggest problem that I've already talked about. Our sin makes it so that we can't earn God's favor. We have rebelled, each one of us have rebelled against God in such a way that we cannot gain this favor on our own. What we most desperately need, we cannot get. But fellowship in the presence of God, this is exactly what was lost when humanity first fell into sin. In, in Eden, Adam and Eve were created in perfect fellowship and union with God. But when they sinned, what happened? It, it was them who got sent out. They could no longer dwell with him because he is perfect. And sin and perfection just cannot coexist. 
And then if you trace that story all through the Bible, it really is humanity trying to, not just on their own volition, sometimes on their own volition, trying to figure out how to dwell again with God, how again to be in the presence of God. The new year is approaching. Lots of people are gonna be starting Bible reading plans. I would encourage you, read through the Bible over 2023. Yeah, 2023, it's a blur. Uh, Read through the Bible over 2023 and look for this thread of what was lost in Genesis 3, this fellowship, this dwelling, this favor, this presence, uh, dwelling with God, and watch all the ways that God makes ways for that to happen again. Watch for that thread, and it will blow your mind. It will take the books of the Bible that normally stall you out in your Bible reading plan, books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they'll start to become some of the most important books of the Bible as you see the way that God, again, brings ways for man to dwell with him. And we see this unravel through things like on Sinai, when God dwells at Sinai. Or we see the tabernacle, and then eventually the temple. And all these different ways are new manifestations of ways for man to again dwell in the presence of God, to find this true joy that we were created to know. And we see in Psalm 30, if you noticed it in the little superscription at the beginning, the, the title, at least in my Bible, it says, Joy Comes with the Morning. That's been added later, as well as the numbers by the editors and those who compiled the Psalms, helps us be organized. Uh, through the, the numbers, the chapter numbers and verse numbers as well as that title. But the other title that your Bibles probably have in there is what mine says, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. That's original. That was have been the first verse in the psalm. And so this thought of, of reading this psalm through the lens of this dedication of the temple sheds a lot of light on this psalm. It, it kind of opens up our scope of what this hope of joy is, this joy being found in the presence of God. Now, you may be piecing these things together and be like, hold on, wasn't the temple built after David had died? You're right. So, there's a couple different options of how this all fits together. Maybe David wrote this in advance. We know David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple, and so maybe he thought, you know, I'm going to write the song. If I can't build the house, I'm going to write the song, and they're going to sing the song when the temple's dedicated. So that's an option. Another option is David wrote this psalm, and then later people took this psalm and said, hey, you know, this would work really well with the dedication of the temple. But either way, this is part of God's inspired word, and so it does shed a lot of light for us on this psalm about how joy is found in the presence of God. Because it kind of gives us a glimmer that we find even more illuminated on the fact that it's Christmas Day. Because even the joy of God dwelling with his people in a temple was only a foreshadowing of Christ. It was only a, a taste of what was to come. Because throughout the whole Old Testament, we see man trying to figure out and often failing at dwelling with God. God making a way for them to uh, be made right with him, and then they just blow it over and over and over. What we see eventually is that God dwells with man. When man could not reach themselves up out of the pit, God lowered himself into the pit. And that's what we remember. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The most glorious story of God dwelling with man, of God sending his own son into the world. It's a beautiful story and it's a beautiful picture that we can often forget the 
uh, I think Dan used the word insanity last night. I loved it. Like, just the, the, the ridiculous notion that God would come to save people. That is good news. And it's a reversal of so many expectations. We might imagine that God would just at some point, hey, if God's going to make it right, he's just going to come and drop the hammer and figure things out. But the Christmas story is a story of a great reversal. A great reversal. And Psalm 30 is full of reversals, right? We see being down in the pit and being drawn up. We see nighttime, we see morning, we see silence, we see singing. We see all these different reversals, morning into dancing, weeping into joy. Well, the story of Christmas is a great reversal of expectations because Jesus was not necessarily the one who came in expected ways or came in the ways that people might imagine, but he's the exact one we needed in the exact way we needed it. Just quickly, I heard this story this week, and I love it a lot. In 1983, there was this ultra marathon in Australia, 544 miles, a running race, okay? And uh, obviously, that kind of distance, people would say, well, you need to sleep. Uh, You can't just do that all in one shot. And so all these people showed up, got their whole kit on. They had all the high-tech gear, elite runners to run 544 miles. That's crazy. So for this one guy showed up, a guy named Cliff Young, Uh, He was 61 years old, and he was a shepherd. He was a poor shepherd. And he had this 2,000-acre farm that he tended, but he didn't have a lot of money, so he, he would shepherd the sheep on his farm by running with the sheep because he didn't have a horse, he didn't have uh, ATV, he didn't have all these things. And so he showed up for this race, and boom, the gun goes off, they all take off, the runners bolt ahead, and Cliff Young's just kind of trotting along in rubber boots, uh, in this race, and they, they leave him in the dust. It's like the tortoise and the hare thing. And Cliff's just plodding along, good old Cliffy, right? And then night comes, and then all the runners set up camp with their teams and everything, and they, they, Cliff doesn't know you're supposed to stop, so Cliff just keeps going. And so he passes them all in the night, and he does this for days on end. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't stop, because when he's, when he's leading his sheep around thousands of acres, he, he can't stop and sleep, so he, he just keeps going, and so Cliff just keeps plodding along, and eventually, you can guess how the story ends, Cliff wins the race, he beats the course record by, get this, two days, okay? Cliff beats the course record by two days, because he didn't stop. Cliff was the last person. You see this guy show up, you see, that's not, that's not the hope we would have, right? That's not, I'm not putting my money on that guy. He was an unexpected reversal of expectations. Well, friends, I want you to think deeply about God dwelling with man. And maybe the expectations that people maybe had of this promised Messiah, this Christ who would come as maybe this this ruler or this warlord, right? He's got the full kit. He looks good. He looks fast. He looks strong. Well, Jesus came in obscurity. It was a reversal of expectations. As much as this mourning that turns to joy is the reversal of expectations that we find in Christ. And Christ came in these unexpected ways, God with us, Emmanuel. He did that to make this divine rescue possible. He made this favor and fellowship between man and God possible. That in his death, when he died... We forget this detail a lot, that the curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place from the other places was torn from the top to bottom. 
symbolizing that, that now man could be with God in a new way that they never knew before. Jesus, even in his own life, talked about himself being the temple. He was a new and better temple, not a literal building or not a literal temple, but he came to accomplish what the temple never could, what the temple was only a foreshadowing of. So when we read Psalms about this joy and this expectation and this reversal of expectations at this dedication of the temple, friends, we find the best reversal of expectations and the most joy possible, the the most amazing prospect of divine favor and being in the presence of God, we find that in Christ. This is good news. This is the pathway to joy. Now, because of what Christ has done, because of his sinless life and his substitutionary death, we can now approach God in ways that we never could before. It's how rescue becomes possible. It's a a stunning reversal of expectations. The gospel itself is a stunning reversal. But we are so easily convinced that we can earn our own salvation. But the good news, friend, is that when we are stuck in the pit of spiritual death, God drew us up like a bucket being lowered down. We couldn't save ourselves. The sides are slippery. We couldn't earn our own salvation. The harder we try, the more we'll just tire ourselves out, drowning in the bottom of this well of our own sin. Friends, the good news of the gospel, the reason we can extol the Lord as David did here, is because God has drawn us up in a way that's even more amazing than, than David could have known as he wrote these words. That whoever decided that this should be the dedication song at the temple couldn't have even imagined the, the beauty of this new and better temple that we find in Christ. This is how we can know true joy, by finding rescue. We must cry out to God for mercy. And just to move quickly through these last number of verses, that's what we see David does as he considers this time in his life where God's face was hidden from him, where he was dismayed, he was terrified. He says, to you, O Yahweh, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Yahweh, and be merciful to me. O Yahweh, be my helper. That's what we have to do. If you're here and you don't know this hope, if you don't know this joy, cry out to God for mercy. He is a merciful God. He hears you. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. David is crying out for mercy here. And he's not just saying, I want to live a longer life. I'm just trying to figure out how to extend my life. He's saying, I, what good am I if I'm dead? How can I tell people of your faithfulness? How can I tell people of your mercy? Right? Even in his prayer, he's asking, he's saying, God, this is what I want, but I want it for your glory. That's how we need to be praying. It's how, all of this is how we can say these last few verses. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and covered me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Yahweh, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Friends, we will face long, dark nights. We will know pain and suffering, but our confidence is that the sun will rise, guaranteed, That guarantee is because Jesus rose from the dead. 
Instead of being clothed with sackcloth or clothing that would signify our mourning and our grief, we can be clothed with gladness. And just an important note here, it's not us who clothes ourselves. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. This source of joy is not something we stir up in ourselves of just, you know, just grin and bear it, just smile, get your act together. Joy is found in rescue. It's lost in self-sufficiency and it's found in the presence of God. And so Christian, if you have cried out for mercy and you know this hope, well, our response ought to be thanksgiving. It needs to be thanksgiving. Look what David says. He says, that my glory may Sing your praise and not be silent. When he talks about his glory, he's talking about just his whole being. That my whole being, all that I am, may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Yahweh, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Today, we are likely going to be exchanging gifts. Maybe you already have today. When you receive a gift, it is polite to say thank you. Right? Kids, you know this. When you get a gift and your mom or dad's like, hey, go say thanks. You're like, I don't want to say thank you. Go say thank you. Right? That's polite. But that's because it's, it's just a gift, right? It's, it's a nice gift. It's someone thought about it. They gave it to you. That's good. We, we ought to say thank you. But real thanksgiving, real thanksgiving, where you're just overcome with emotion, all you can do is say thank you, is because of joy. And so this Christmas, Psalm 30 reminds us that we have received the greatest gift in the world, that we ought to be overcome by thanksgiving, that we don't go and say thanks because it's polite. We say thanks because we're overcome with true joy at the gift of Christ. I know it sounds cheesy that Jesus is the best gift you could ever receive, but oh man, it's true. I wish I had better words to say how good of a gift Jesus is for you. And so what we need to do is respond in thanksgiving. There is no greater gift than Christ and no greater joy than knowing God. And it's only through Christ that we can know him. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Even in this life, we may get these tastes of joy that awaits us in eternity. There's a future hope, too. Just as David couldn't have realized as he wrote these words, just as whoever sang the song of the dedication of the temple couldn't have realized the hope that was to come. Friends, we are in a place where we know this hope. We can know peace with God. We have a taste of this joy, but it is only a foretaste of the true deliverance that we can know, of what eternity is gonna be like in the presence of God. Joy is found in the presence of God. Friends, right now we have a taste of that, but we have an eternity to look forward to. And the Bible ends with this vision of true joy and a glorious future where there will be no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more night, and no need for a temple. In Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Then later on in the chapter, it says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. 
and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Weeping may tarry, it may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Friends, we know that hope because of what Christ has done, but we await an even more amazing hope that there will be no more night. This life, even at its best, we are still in the night. Joy comes in the morning. And so don't settle this Christmas for cheap substitutes that claim to offer joy. Don't settle for fleeting prosperity. Enjoy this season. Enjoy today. Enjoy the traditions and the food and the fellowship and the fun. But don't put your hope in those things. God has made a way to rescue you. Find true joy in Christ today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are stunned to think that us, in all of our sin and need, uh, that you have made a way for us to know peace with you. God, I pray for each and every person here, from the youngest to the oldest, for those that have known you for uh, the longest, to those that maybe don't know you uh, even now. God, I pray that we would have a clear picture of the hope that is found in the gift of your son who we think about this Christmas, that we might find true joy and that we wouldn't settle for quick fix self-help, fake smile joy, that we would know true, deep joy, resting in the fact that, yes, weeping will tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. We thank you for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.